Let us worship God. first letter to the Corinthians, the 13th chapter, beginning with the 8th verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy One, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning, that your word might fall afresh upon us this day. Amen. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, 
Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. as to how our SFTS graduates are doing uh, in their uh, ministry or wherever they are, especially for someone like Jenna, who graduated top of her class, in case you didn't know. Uh, I can tell that her ministry is thriving uh, at this church and its extended ministry like Potrero, as we witnessed this morning, and I am immensely happy and proud. Uh, it's a great honor for me to be at this uh, service, and thank you very much for having me. I don't know about you, but being a young man in my prime, I rarely think about death. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> So I take it back and tell you the truth. Being an old man myself, 
I am increasingly conscious of the finitude of life, my own mortality, and I'm curious as to what death would bring about. Anything after my own death? I've been thinking about death lately, especially for a number of reasons. This year marks the 10th anniversary of my mother's passing. Last April, my mother-in-law passed away. And last August, my beloved dog Snoopy crossed the rainbow bridge as they say in Scotland. When your loved ones depart from you, you raise a lot of questions. Where are they? Are they in heaven, in the bosom of God? Or are they temporarily staying in some liminal place, waiting for their final resurrection? Is there anything after death. Would I ever see them again when I die or when Jesus comes back, whenever? In the past, I did not know that I did not know the answers to these questions. Now I do, and it seems okay. I mean, not completely okay, but I can live with that. I seem to have realized that despite all the Christian language of revelation and biblical truth, certain things, in fact, a lot of things, remain unknown and unknowable. So your Christian faith should never give you a presumption of sure knowledge when such a thing is not available. A caveat against the presumption of sure knowledge is well articulated in the scripture passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is called an encomium of love, and rightly so, but it could just as well be called a deconstruction of knowledge, theological knowledge in particular. Now in verse 9 and 10, Paul says, we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will be abolished. You may notice that my translation is slightly, only slightly different from the NRSV, which is a fine translation, but uh, the original Greek verb in that verse is much stronger then new RSVP uh, has it. Uh, it means be annihilated or be abolished. So the Paul, Paul does not say the partial knowledge or prophecy will someday be made whole. It's not worth it. Instead, he says our knowledge and our prophecy, which can only be partial, will be totally abolished when the complete comes. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, the same Paul says, 
Anyone who claims to know something does not yet know what one ought to know. This is almost a verbatim citation of a Delphic maxim, know thyself. In one of Plato's dialogues, Protagoras, Socrates provides a commentary of this particular maxim, know thyself, as meaning know that you do not know anything. Now this Socratic wisdom is translated into an apocalyptic language in verse 12, in which Paul says, now we only see in a mirror, in enigma, but then, I may add, only then we shall see face to face. In ancient Greece, there was a notion that divine oracles always come in enigma. In the temple of Apollo at Delphi, when Pythia, the presiding priestess, was possessed by Apollo and went into ecstasy, she spoke in tongues and she delivered an oracle. And that is the Delphic oracle. And this initial oracle was incomprehensible to human ears because it's a divine language and it had to be translated into Greek by an attending male priest who was called an hermeneutes, an interpreter. But even this translated oracle was still an enigma and the meaning remained obscure. That's just how oracle was. The divine revelation never offers sure knowledge. God's will comes to humans always as an enigma. In our passage, Paul seems to be borrowing from this Delphic wisdom to produce the hermeneutical key to his theological epistemology. That is, whatever profound theological statement Paul makes, or whatever elaborate end-time scenario he presents, it will have to be interpreted with this caveat in mind. We only see in enigma. We only know in part. And what partial knowledge we now seem to have will be completely annihilated when the time comes. Then what? What do you do when you realize that your knowledge about God, about Jesus Christ, and about the ultimate human destiny is only partial, even worthless, and it will one day be abolished? What do you do when you realize that? Apostle Paul says, when knowledge ceases, what remains is faith, hope, and love. I don't think hope and love need an explanation. But faith does in this case. The Greek noun for the English word faith 
in this passage is pistis. So let's remember this one word, pistis. Hard to translate. The Greek noun pistis has a very broad semantic range. It could mean trust, conviction, belief, or faith, or the content of your faith. But it can also mean trustworthiness, reliability, or faithfulness. In Aristotle's rhetorical theory, the same word, pistis, means cogency of your argument. So that's how broad its semantic range is. So, faith, a common translation in English Bibles, as a firm religious belief or the content thereof is only one among the many possible translations of this word. Moreover, in this context, our scripture passage today, in which certitude of knowledge is categorically denied, the word pistis, as what remains after knowledge ceases, means anything but a firm theological belief. It rather means faithfulness in this context, if not anywhere else. So what do you do when you realize that the partial knowledge you have is worthless? According to Paul, this is what you do. While you know only in part and see only in enigma, you continue to be faithful in what you are called to do, hoping for what is not known, what cannot be known, but loving God and loving others. That is what the Christian life is all about, according to Apostle Paul. In 399 BCE, three leaders of the Athenian Democratic Party, Meletus, Anaitus, and Lycon, brought serious charges against Socrates. So the famous trial of Socrates was held in the Agora, the judicial court of Athens. After six hours of the prosecution speech and the defense speech, the jurors, 500 in number, cast their votes and a guilty verdict was given with a slight majority of 280 versus 220. Then the determination of the penalty took another cycle of speeches and a formal vote, second vote. Usually at that stage, the convicted defenders would beg for their life, beg the jurors for a more lenient penalty than proposed by the prosecution party. But according to Plato's Apology of Socrates, Socrates did none of that. Instead, somewhat arrogantly or audaciously, depending on how you look at it, Socrates gave the jurors an unapologetic autobiographic summary of his life. In a nutshell, Socrates said he was a gadfly 
or a bee, if you will, sent by God to a sluggish horse that is Athens to arouse it and urge it to care for virtues. Now, having fulfilled his God-given mission, Socrates felt no need to plea for an extension of his life. The jurors cast their votes, and the death penalty was given, this time with a bigger margin of 360 versus 140. Apparently, the jurors were offended because he was too arrogant. At the end of the trial, Socrates delivered his last speech, in which he said he was not afraid of dying. It is not because he believes, like many did in antiquity, in a blissful afterlife that he is not afraid to die. In fact, then and there, he says, he does not know if death is the ultimate end or if his soul continues to exist somewhere after death and even goes to Elysium, which was the Greek version of the paradise. Socrates says, either way, he will be fine. So at the very end of his final speech, Socrates says, and I quote him verbatim, now is the time to go. I to die, you to live. But which of us goes to a better lot no one knows but God. Socrates died a happy person because he had been faithful in his God-given mission. To him, at least, that was his salvation, with or without a blissful afterlife. I read this fascinating book, Plato's so uh, Apology of Socrates for the first time when I took a reading course in classical Greek as a doctoral student a long time ago. The professor who taught this class was a young classics scholar by the name of George Walsh. On the last day of the semester, this was the last day of class, as he was translating the last sentences of Socrates, which I just quoted you verbatim, I noticed tears in his eyes. I mean, he must have read and taught this, this text numerous times, but obviously he was still touched. Granted that the, the text was a, a deeply moving one, I still thought those tears in his eyes were somewhat excessive. A few months later, I read in the obituary section of the New York Times that this professor, George Walsh, died of cancer at tender age 42. I mean, for curiosity, I looked it up yesterday on Google. The obituary is still there in the New York Times archive. According to his bereft wife, when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, 
he refused to take chemotherapy. Instead, he decided to spend his last year doing what he was called to do as best as he could. So it happened that the class he taught last was the class that I took. The Christian life is not about subscribing to a set of orthodox doctrines or dogmas, creeds or confessions. Why? Because we know only in part and we only see in enigma. The Christian life is all about living out your call in faithfulness. That is what Paul means by pistis in our passage. So in closing, I paraphrase the last verses of our scripture passage one more time. While we know only in part and we see only in enigma, we should continue to be faithful in what we are called to do, hoping for what is not known and loving God and loving others. May this be our salvation too. Amen.
As we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God. Oh, 
Thank you.
Let us pray. Holy One, you have fed us in silence, in word, in song, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. Now is the time to go, faithful in your God-given mission, as you love God and love one another. And may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love, be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen. Thank you.